morning and special greetings to all women during this Women's Month. Happy Women's Month. Good morning to everyone who has tuned in, wherever you may be. And to everyone, particularly the, the women, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ prove sufficient for each and every one of you as you navigate the perils of this life and as you strive to become the best that God has created you despite the odds that you are facing. Today I want to chat to us about removing the blind spots in addressing gender-based violence. As part of our ongoing, ongoing effort as a local church to highlight and find solutions to the scourge of gender-based violence, I want today to zoom into some critical aspects of solutions, formulations that can easily be lost as vital considerations in addressing gender-based violence. And I'm aware that some of the things that I want to raise today may not sit well with some of us. They may even evoke some animosity. But needless to say, I'm not necessarily flinching. I'm hoping that I can encourage us as a generation to find solutions that are not going to create even more adverse problems for future generations as it is apparent in our political circles. You, you are aware that the solutions that our politicians have sought in the past and have reached consensus about them being the best have proved not necessarily the best for everyone. So from the onset, let me therefore state that what I will say today uh, does not constitute the official stance of Cosmos City Church on the matter of gender-based violence, but rather a fraction of my own input and contribution to the ongoing deliberations within the church on how best to deal with the matter. Therefore, it's not going to really be a preaching as such, but a sharing of ideas and what I intend to address uh, it's not primarily solutions, therefore, as that would fall in the, in the context of Cosmos City Church as a local church, that would fall under the ambit of brainstorming and strategy formulation. Mine at this point, my intention is simply to bring light and hopefully an appreciation of the complex context in which we seek to find solutions to the gender-based violence and hopefully we can look at what inherently to, to the sketch are the complex variables contributing to it. In as much as I want to say a lot, I will not say everything and therefore I cannot comprehensively cover everything that needs to be covered. So let's just pray and trust God for hearts that are open. And if, if issues are tough, they are not personal. They are not meant to be insensitive in any way. They are simply meant to allow us to, to remove the scotoma, the blind spots of our views on the matter. And to allow us to engage with other people that we do not necessarily agree with in an amicable and a progressive manner. So let's just pray for you and me 
that our hearts will be open and the Lord will help us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who leads us and guides us. Holy Spirit, we pray for, for wisdom to speak on this sensitive matter without coming across as insensitive and to help us formulate godly views and practical solutions that would not become a problem later in the future. I submit myself to you. I submit the listeners to you, Lord. Help us all that this talk does not raise solutions or rather problems within us that would create even more tensions, but it opens us to what is possibly lying out there, waiting for us to engage in Jesus' name. Amen. So as a, as a point of departure, I want to look at the state of a human being's heart, even as we consider the complexities of our engagement in gender-based violence and how we seek solutions, we must be aware that we are dealing with the heart of a fallen man, a man or a human being or a person who does not necessarily always align himself with who he is in God and what God intended. And therefore, all the solutions that we come up with, we must be aware that we are all not sharing heterogeneous persuasions about these things. We, we do not share the same religious, cultural, philosophical convictions. Therefore, even though we suffer the same problem, even though we all want to deal with gender-based violence, it doesn't mean we agree on methodologies and our persuasions in regard to that. And so I want to start off by looking at what the Bible has to say about the state of man and the problems that he, he, he actually creates for himself and how he seeks to solve them. So I'm reading in Genesis chapter 3 verse 16 from the NLT version. It says, this is when God was cursing the human race and creation after the fall and the sin of Adam and Eve. It says, then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy and in pain you will give birth and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. So there is an inherent attitude or inherent disposition in genders to be in conflict. One wants to oppress, one wants to control, and one wants to rule in a manner that defames and devalues the other. In Genesis chapter 5, rather chapter 6, verse 5 to 6, God speaks of the state of man's heart post the fall. He says, it says, the Lord observed the extent of the human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke God's heart. It still breaks God's heart when he sees what we do one to another. In Jeremiah 17, Verse 9, highlighting the state of our hearts, it says, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. 
Who really knows how bad it is? Our hearts are very bad. Even when we want to do good, we still are disposed to wickedness in our hearts. And so I want to look at how people, when they face a crisis, in particular gender-based violence, how they propagate it and, and, and how they become involved implicitly. I will, I will look into this fact because that's where my emphasis is today. How are we involved despite the fact that we choose not to point fingers at ourselves? There's a story in Genesis 19 of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Bible tells us there that uh, God having seen how righteous Lot was, he sent his angels to take him out of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah before he destroyed the city. But it says, as the angels were in his house, the men of the city came to Lot's house and they started pounding the door and they, 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 they wanted to sleep with these guys. So this is what it says, Genesis 19, 4, verse 8. I want you to, to, to observe Lot's response. says, now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house and they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out and let us, that we may know them carnally, that we may know them carnally. I just chose that uh, for parents, specifically those who are watching with, Christ, with children. So Lot went out to them through the doorway. I'm reading from the N N NKJV, the New King James Version. He went out to them on the doorway, shut the door behind him and said, Please, my, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. So he, 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 he considers them wanting to sleep with this man wicked. But listen to what he says. He says, see now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them to you, out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. If you read other versions, they will explicitly tell you what he meant. Only do nothing to this man since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. Another version says they are, they are under my protection. So strangers, men for that matter, are under his protection, but his own daughters are not. We'll come back to that later. In Judges chapter 19, a similar event happens of a Levite who had married a concubine. Just there, speaking of the concubine, be aware that by implication, it just tells you that for many cultures, concubines, second wives, secondary wives are a part of culture whether in a form of a polygamy or in a form of a concubine setup. But what I want you to note about this culture and what the, 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 the implications of that setup means is that here are two or three women serving the same men, giving of their life in a similar manner. But culture gives... Accord culture gives a leeway for them not to be treated equally, despite 
equally sacrificing their lives for this man. But that's another talk. So in Judges chapter 19, verse 20 to 30, we read, you know, the the story. I'm just picking the story in the middle. This man, this Levite, had married a concubine who played a harlot and went back to her father's house. And the man went back to fetch the woman. When they were supposed to leave the in-laws' home, the father delayed them until some few days later, when it was even late, the man said, no, 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 we are leaving. And they came to another city, and in that city, uh, it was already dark, it was late in the afternoon. Another old man, you know, had compassion on them, just like Lot did seeing the, the angels in the city. So it says, and the old man said, reading from verse 20, peace be with you. However, let all your needs be my responsibility. Only do not spend the night in the open square. So he brought them into his house and gave fodder to the donkeys. And they washed their feet and ate and drank. As they were enjoying themselves, suddenly certain men of the city perverted men surrounded the house and beat on the door. They spoke to the master of the house, the old man, saying, Bring out the man who came to your house that we may know him carnally. But the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brethren, I beg you, do not act so wickedly. Pretty much the words of Lord. Seeing this man has come into my house, do not commit this outrage. Look, here is my virgin daughter. Virgin daughter and the man's concubine. Let me bring them out now. Humble them and do with them as you please. But to this man, do not do such a vile thing. But the man would not heed him. So the man, the Levite, took his concubine and brought her out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until morning. And when the the day began to break, they let her go. Then the woman came as the day was dawning and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was. Till it was light. When her master rose, now I want you to realize, whatever happened, there was such indifference all around from the guy who hosted them, from her own husband or master, from people all around. Surely this woman must have been screaming, but there was just total indifference as it is in our case, uh, in our modern society. It says, when her master rose in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out, listen, to go his way, there was his concubine, fallen at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, sensitive, insensitive, judge for yourself, get up and let us be going. But there was no answer. So the man lifted her onto the donkey. And the man got up and went to his place. There was no answer, meaning the woman was dead. 
We're talking now femicide. That was enabled. That's, that's where my, my talk is. Enablement. When he entered his house, he took a knife, laid hold of his concubine, and divided her into 12 pieces, limb by limb, and set her throughout the ter- all the territory of Israel. And so it was that all who saw it said, No such deed has been done or seen from the day that the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, confer, and speak up. So here's what the irony of this situation. This man was indifferent. This man saved his own skin. This man was not willing to take... um, to put his life on the line for this woman. Neither was the, his host. But when the woman has been murdered in the process, this man now takes a stance to, 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 to send a message to the 12 tribes of Israel. He's almost saying, I'm indignant, I'm furious, I'm appalled, I'm, 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 I'm disgusted. This thing is evil. But wait, you didn't go out last night. You didn't do anything. You didn't speak a word against the action. But here you are today, you are saying, let's do something. That is not to say that nothing was to be done. But it is to highlight the fact that there was the enablement of the situation to happen. And the let's do something was pretty much a reaction and afterthought and I guess at at many levels that's where we are in our approaches. So it says let's consider this matter as we are doing in retrospect post effects of many women dying. Let's confer, let's consult and let's speak up. So the fight against gender-based violence is not only familial, it's not only communal, but it is national, it is also global. And of course, by definition, it is not exclusively committed against women. It is committed against anyone, men and women, based on their gender. But obviously, for the context of the discussion, we're trying to zoom into violence committed against women. So I want to state that this violence, it's, it's spiritual, as we have seen. It's, it's, it's familial, it's communal, it's national, it's global, it's historical, it's systemic. You know, the, the, the institutions of the land themselves, whether they be corporate, whether they be civil, are actually implicit in the abuse of women. It's economic. There's, there's, a, there's, there's an economic benefit. There's a, there are people who benefit from these things. It's philosophical and it's cultural. So, off the bat, again, let me say, because of those all complexities, it is important that we are therefore approaching this plight with different persuasions in our hand 
for solutions. One sector of people facing the same problems are going to emphasize something different. Why? Because we do not believe same things religiously, philosophically, politically, culturally, economically, and so forth. Thus, as I said, even though we share common concerns, we do not necessarily share common convictions and methodologies in approaching these same concerns. So, in the context of the church in particular, of course what I, I, I'm going to say applies to other people as well, but I want to specifically say to, to the church, when we look at getting involved in finding solutions, we must be careful and understand the the context that we are dealing with. We are not dealing with a, 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 a context where people share the same convictions. That's number one. But even more importantly, the state of rebellion in people's hearts, even in the church, is at the peak against God. So part of what I want to also then look at as a premise from which I want to speak from a national point of view, is that we as South Africans, the atmosphere of our country would have serious ramifications for the solutions we are trying to find. Number one, as a country we are volatile regarding sensitive issues, whether they be gender or racial. We are very volatile, we are very reactive, and we seek to find solutions that deals with exclusively what we are uh, uh, fired up about that moment. We will burn and kill and do this just so that we can vent our anger. We are not holistic in our approach. Secondly, as a country, we have a very, generally, we have a very high tolerance for violence. We, we, you, you see in the way we, when people are, are, are mugged, when people are, are killed, we, we are indifferent. We walk around, we see uh, uh, smash and grabs, we, we drive away as if nothing is happening. We, we see people fighting, it's not my business. We, we murder those we don't agree with. But even sadly, we also know the perpetrators and we, we are just okay. What I also find said is that in our communities, in many communities in our nation, violence over many years has been celebrated. You know, we, 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 we put violent people on a pedestal. Yeah, that guy, he's a dog. When we enjoy that guy, we, we, we celebritize violent people, you know, and we, we, they are legendary in our stories. But what I also want to look at and challenge myself and challenge you as a person listening, it's our personal and collective persuasions, our own convictions, our own passions as we deal with this GBV issue. So let me confront this issue first. What I call 
the bias of concern or the contextual bias? Let me ask this question. When thinking of gender-based violence and when you feel sympathetic or empathetic or wanting to get involved, who do you have in mind as the recipient of your help, of your concern? Who are you empathizing with? Who are you sympathizing with the most? Who do you want to protect the most? And who are you inherently excluding? Let me bring it home. Someone says, it's gender-based violence or it's violence against women. I am for women. Good. Are you for women to the exclusion of men? Yes. Well, that's not necessarily gender-based violence. That's violence against women. Okay, let's not get technical. But, which women do you have in mind? Are you for all women? Does your definition of women include prostitutes, include lesbians, include delinquents, or you'd rather have the righteous, the good people be part of your consent? So don't get involved on a high horse, on a moral high horse, when you want to address gender-based violence, you have to deal with your contextual bias. If it's gender-based, by extension, it would include corrective rape. It would include the protection of gays and lesbians because it is you're not addressing your convictions about behavior you are addressing the injustices that happen to people based on their gender and whether by extension you agree or not through by their uh, orientation and may, maybe let me ask at that point how come in any community or nation, criminals are a minority, but they are the most flourishing? And the answer is simple. It's because they are enabled, they are given an atmosphere and an environment to, to, to flourish. Some few years ago, uh, Zapiro made a... a he, do a draw, he did a drawing of the molesting of Lady Justice and the implication of it was that there are enablers who are implicitly or complicitly creating an environment for such an abuse of justice. And that particular cartoon evoked you know, extreme, a myriad of responses because people were, were responding from their different persuasions, culture, religion, you know, respect, values, and so on and so forth. But what I want to borrow from the implication of it is that in gender-based violence, one of the short-sighted things that we have done is that 
we have reduced everything simply to perpetrator and victim. Men who abuse and women who are abused. And then the rest can go scot-free. And so today what I want to highlight is let's not allow everyone to go scot-free. Let's, uh, let's make everyone be accountable for their involvement, their contribution, however less, however extreme it may be. But let's ensure that everyone takes their responsibility. So, here's a few things then. The factors that we need to acknowledge and own up to so that we can formulate all-encompassing holistic solutions so that we can make necessary reforms. I want to look at those factors that are contributing to gender-based violence, some of which have been highlighted in the past. Some, we approach them tentatively. Others, we choose to turn a blind eye to them. Number one, gender-based violence has economic spin-offs for some people. So you do have people that sell their, their children. You have pimps. You have people who benefit from this violence. What are we doing about the beneficiaries of gender-based violence? Number two, our own attitude contribute to, to, to this uh, plight. Our, it's none of my business attitude, all of us. No, the historical and the current prevalent nonchalance, indifference, and turning a blind eye are at the root of the escalation of gender-based violence. We, we say it's not your business, it's not my business. You know, like I said, we, we are generally tolerant. We blessedly pass by when a woman is being beaten, when a person, any person is marked. We, we've developed such indifference and yet we play, you know, dumb when violence escalates, when anything is enabled, it escalates. You know, the, 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 the law of thermodynamics, I think it's the second law, states that any system left to itself gravitates towards disorder. So when we create, we allow perpetrators to just continue. They'll continue and do what they want. And so gender-based violence, therefore, let's not reduce it only to victims and perpetrators. Let's include instigators. Let's include enablers. Hmm? Let's include aiders and abettors. Let's include all of us because we are all implicit. There are other women who abuse men. So Men abuse also contributes to gender-based violence because violence begets violence. Men who see violence in their homes as a solution become violent. That was already covered in the past. You know? Environments, cultures, our cultures uh, uh, enable violence. So you, you, you can... 
kill the perpetrator, but the culture will continue to produce, you know, uh, because our culture produces both victims and perpetrators. I'll come to that. Family structures, they are contributing as uh, we produce culturally within the families. So, for instance, look at things like um, marital security. How many women have allowed stepfathers to abuse and molest their children just because they say, they want to save their marriage by sacrificing the children. How many women, parents, are raising their children to be dependent Makotis? they like, no, 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 who will marry you if you can't do this and this? We teach subservience to our children so that they are dependent on men. How many people in church, in the society, are putting pressure on young women to get married to the extent that the woman would get married even if they are not ready. Young people are put under pressure to get married and when their immaturity comes to surface and they don't know how to handle each other's uh, conflicting personalities and character, they fight and we, the ones who are pushing them to get married, we're sitting back now. How many times do, for instance, you see environments where churches in particular, we elevate marriage as the ultimate state of wholeness such that those who are not married are made to feel unholy. And because they are made to feel that way, they want to get married whatever the cost. And when they do get married, if they are abused, then because they had reached the apex of achievement in this life, it's hard to come out. How many people, and this is a sensitive matter, do not report? Because when you do not report, you are implicit because... You are saying the person who has abused you may abuse the other, the next one. And I understand. I, I work with such cases. I understand the plight and the things that happen. But we need to find courage to, to put a stop to it. Also, secondary victimization. The, the state institutions, the police... How many women go to police stations and are abused? How many bosses in the corporate? So you see, it's systemic. Civil institutions, corporate institutions. How many bosses want you to sleep with them before you can get a, a, a promotion? The justice system fails people. You know, that I don't want to go into. A lot of us know how that goes. But then there's also a systemic approach in which we ourselves as solution finders create even more problems systemically. Let me talk about um, examples. Extreme or ultra-activism against any issue creates more problems. Ultra-activism in a quest to solve gender-based violence, 
that now creates animosity against men is not helpful. In our nobility, we want to do right. But in our anger and frustration, we take the wrong approach. For instance, the, the, the men are pigs, men are dogs slogans. Whilst we don't want to, at this point, desensitize or even uh, create an exception to the rule mindset, it is important to highlight that ultra-activism takes for granted that other people would, by nature, respond to such a thing. Any generalizations evokes and provokes people. If you say, all whites are racist, whites will, will, will respond. If you say, all blacks are stupid, other sectors of the black community will. If you say, women are like this, other women, in, in a similar manner, anything that is ultra-generalization will produce a, a, a backlash and will perpetuate the very things that we are trying to solve. Other initiatives, for instance, are very good initiatives, but in our short-sightedness, we continue to perpetrate problems. Let me take another very noble initiative. Take a, a girl child to work initiative. Beautiful initiative. The scotoma, the blind spot of it. And someone may argue, yeah, why, why don't someone start it? That's my point. My point is, it is better take a child to work. Why? Because you have a society of men who are scared of successful women. Should it be our problem? Maybe you think it's not, but it should be because it is the way we create solutions that eventually means one side is privileged again and the other one is not privileged. So we create the educated and the barbaric on the other side. So let's not... Uh, especially when we deal with particularly the, the previously disadvantaged communities. Let's not make solutions that are void of the thinking around equality. Let's create equal opportunities. Let's not correct the wrong by creating another. You know, and another one of the things that I want to highlight as well is how about religious leaders? How about we as pastors who deem our personal convictions about forgiveness for the perpetrate more supreme than the right of the violated? So we operate like family setups. So we say, no, let's not, let's not destroy his uh, reputation, let's not destroy. Yeah, but those are our personal convictions. They do not necessarily serve justice for the one, uh, for the victim, you know. 
uh, our communities who say, let's not meddle in other people's affairs. What about the politicians who have forgotten their civil duties, but are enchanted by greed to just line up their pockets and make empty speeches? A lot of money that was supposed to be used to emancipate women and children have lined up the politicians' pockets and have left these people, the women and children, and the underprivileged, the oppressed, more weak, dependent on the, the, the scavengers. The corruption, as Mr. Lumumba said, should in fact be uh, seen as a, as, as, as a violation of human rights because corrupt politicians and corrupt authorities create an environment for others who, for the haves, to abuse the have-nots. Authority figures, they contribute. How many school kids are abused by teachers? What is the government doing? What is the legal system doing? What are we doing as, as, as communities? Parents who abdicate from their parenting responsibilities, you know? And we as a collective, we hold no one to accountability. We don't hold the government accountable. We do not hold the, 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 the systems accountable. We do not hold the institutions accountable. We do not hold the perpetrators. We do not hold ourselves accountable. You know? So how are we going to deal with issues when we don't take responsibilities individually and collectively and then face one another and say, I was wrong for being silent. I was wrong for not asking my friend, have you ever raped a girl? Have, have, has, do we know anyone who has done this thing? What are we doing about it? For, for not answering to our own spouses, so baby, what are you doing about this whole thing? So who, who is the abuser, therefore, of women? Mostly men, indeed, yes, that's true. But who's enabling them? All of us. Both the perpetrator and the victim have passed through the systems of enablement. You know? So all of us, one way or the other, are benefactors to perpetrators. The unfortunate thing is, what God expects of us cannot be legislated. So, as a church, what can we do? And as, as I said, I'm not trying to give you a solution. I'm trying to say these things are complex, but we need to have a holistic view to think of who else do we partner with? We are part of societies. We are not, a we are not just church. We are part of societies. We are part of communities. We need, as a collective, starting with the individual, find solutions. So what are the things I can suggest to the church? Number one, firstly, eradicate hypocrisy. And also, rebut, remove the, 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 the culture of don't judge me. Because every time, don't judge me, that we allow people to sidestep discipline. A person beats his wife, and then like, no, he's... Open, frank, and honest discussions 
as a church, we must open frank and honest discussions on our views on gender equality, on roles and patriarchy. We must also engage perpetrators in our midst directly about their behavior and where necessary, report the matters to the relevant authorities. Let me just land it here for today. It's an ongoing discussion, obviously. But let me end it this way. If we find solutions that do not address our own involvement, whether implicitly, in complicity, whether through silence or our indifference, whether through aiding and abetting the perpetrators, then we will certainly come back to the same problems to try and solve many years later, if not worse. So, I'm not giving solutions today. We can brainstorm solutions today. Or rather, next time, all of us, wherever we are. All I'm saying is, don't allow your solutions to just look at one group of people. Look at everyone. To solve a crime, everyone is a suspect. And in this case, we must look at enablers as well. And I want to close off by reading in Second Corinthians chapter 7. Speaking of when the church repents. As a church, we have to pray. As a church, we have to repent for ourselves and for our nation. But we must also repent with a view to bring salvation to the confused, hurting, dying world of the lost. We must repent for our involvement in enabling gender-based violence. We must open frank discussions, as I said, collectively as men and women, young men, young women. We must not just teach purity. We must talk about how do we enforce the values espoused by the Bibles in our communities. Speaking of repentance, and I want to contextualize our involvement it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I'm reading from verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. So if we are truly sorrowful for being inactive and indifferent to the plight of the destitute, of women, of the poor, of every other person that God says we must fight for the justice of the, the, the downtrodden and speak on behalf of those who cannot speak. If we repent, listen to what it says. It says, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. My prayer is that we can prove ourselves innocent long term. And by innocent, I mean 
we will take approaches, methodologies, you know, actions that will ensure that justice is done. And let me extend um, our concern and prayers to those that have suffered in one way or the other, you know. I know you may be asking, does God love me? God loves you. Yet we live in a wicked and a fallen world where people's hearts are forever towards evil. Yet the bitterness and the anger and the what will not heal you. Find professional help. Find, get counseling. And let me add, give your life to Jesus. Let Jesus heal you. If you are already saved, ask the Holy Spirit to work deeper in your heart. And for those of us who have been standing at the periphery, who've been saying, it's not my business, let's make it our business to see that justice is served one, but to also see that before God, we are proven innocent in this matter because we did not turn a blind eye. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for many women who have supported this nation, the nations of the world, many of whom have carried harder than anyone. I'm reminded, Lord, of a post, someone says, if indeed hard labor pays, women in Africa would be rich because they work hard. They've worked hard in, a, in our political struggle. They continue to work hard as mothers, as wives, as corporate people at every level with less appreciation. Father, I pray that you help us as a nation, as churches, as a local church, to take a stand and to do something. I pray that you heal the sick, heal the downtrodden in their hearts, heal the memories of those who have been abused, heal the memories of those whose loved ones have been murdered and abused. And Lord, as we engage as a local church, even as we engage at national levels, as different organizations. Give us divinely inspired solutions, Lord, that we put a stop to this if it were possible, Lord. Father, I thank you for your grace. May those who don't know you today know that they can, where they are, simply say, Jesus, come into my life. Be my Lord and my Savior and you will come. Thank you. Amen. Bless you. Let's be part of the solution. And let's eradicate this monster. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.